And if you would take your Bibles and please turn open to Isaiah. In fact, if you put your thumb right in the middle of your Bible, you might flop open to it. It tends to be centrally located. We're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. This is one of the more uh, well-known Christmas passages commemorating the birth of Christ. But a reason why I want to look at it is because, um, number one, it teaches us something about the nature of prophecy. And I think that's important for us to understand. Prophecy has been a, a topic that has often been uh, railed against, that we don't need to study it. Um, I find that usually the people who are telling me that are the people that are telling me that the world's getting better. And, and so I don't trust them. <laughs> that's not a joke. It's true. Um, that's dangerous. It's dangerous ground to be on. A little over 40% of our Bibles are prophecy. And what's amazing about prophecy is that so far, God's batting a thousand. He hasn't come up wrong. There's not one prophecy that's been put forward that has gone south or, hmm, I don't think that's what he meant by what he said there. No, it's actually all come true exactly the way it is. And because we see such prophecies coming true in the first coming of Christ, in such a literal way as what they have, it gives us a lot of guidance and confidence about how to understand prophecies regarding His second coming, that we can understand them as literally happening. This is why we believe in a literal kingdom uh, that Jesus will establish when He returns to the earth. This is the reason why we believe in His literal return to the earth. This is the reason why we hold to the rapture of the church, that we will not see the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation of God's wrath upon the earth, because we actually believe that the Bible says what it says. And that might sound revolutionary to you, or that might sound like just a, well, why is that a big deal? Because there's a lot of people that don't, and have tried to spiritualize Scripture into saying something that it doesn't. Now, real quick, let me, let me destroy all uh, speculation about this. Why am I wearing a tie? Let's talk about this real quick. I had a, some, a couple of people come up and shake my hand and said, are you a visitor today? It's nice to have you with us. <clears throat> I get here last night. Number one, let me back up a little bit. I heard the comment that Kevin said about how much better dressed he was up here than I ever am, okay? I heard that. The Lord will deal with his heart, okay? But I come in last night, and Zach walks in. And, what's, what's that? We've talked about it, yeah, but anyway. I mean, you and the Lord, okay. I come in last night. And Zach strolls in with the tie on. And I don't have one. I said, why do you have a tie on? He said, my wife picked out my shirt. Which that doesn't happen for me. Except for today. Because I took Zach's advice, okay? He said, this shirt was missing a button, so I needed to put a tie on in order to cover that up. <laughs> I wanted to grab him and strangle him with that tie. Because now I look incredibly dressed down when everybody looks dressed up. So my wife said this morning, she said, are you going to wear a tie today? I didn't reply, are you saying that because Zach wore a tie last night? Is that why? I said, sure. I tell you what, you pick out a shirt and a tie. So, hey, real quick. Thank you. Oh. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, my body is not my own, okay? 
My wife wants me to wear a tie. Fantastic. I don't have a beard that I could hide squirrels in. Because that's what I really want in life. My wife doesn't like it. My body's not my own. Different sermon. Let's move on. I want to make a comment. Merry, Merry Christmas, Jay. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 9 captures a very interesting scene in Israel's history. One thing that we have to remember about prophecies that God puts forward is that they're always related to hope. Even when they seem bad, the discipline of the Lord is never a bad thing. So many people would say, well, if the Lord is going to come along and discipline a people, isn't that terrible? No. What it says is that God loves you enough to spank your rear quarters in order to get you on a better path. He's actually taking the initiative to make His love known because He's saying there's a better way, there's a better way, there's a better way. So even when we see prophecies of bad things coming along, it's because God is fulfilling His Word and desiring better for His children. In the midst of Isaiah here, if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah at all, Isaiah is grieved. Just read the first chapter alone. You get, you get an opportunity and you want some interesting devotion time. Take chapter 1 of Isaiah, divide it up into two different settings, and spend some alone time with God and, and see. You can see Isaiah's heart bleeding off the page about the condition of Israel. God hurts over them despising Him and walking away from Him and creating idols for themselves. It grieves him. Why? Because he has so much better in store for his kids. He wants so much better in store for his kids. And they want filth when they could have a feast. It's unbelievable. Maybe sometimes we felt like that about our own children. About some of the choices that are made in life. And you think, good grief. We're, we're, we're seeing 2020 here and there's a better way. There's a better way. And it, it hurts your heart. What's amazing about this is that God is able to give Hope in the midst of such terrible time. And that's the beautiful thing about what it is to know Jesus Christ and to celebrate this season and to have the freedom to do so. I don't know if you've recognized this, but the best that this day gets for people who don't know Jesus is just some material thing that they're unwrapping that in time is going to fade. It's going to dwindle. It's not going to be as special. What's sad is, is in a lot of situations, when there's this deep desire for material possessions and you end up with it, you actually find out how much you really didn't want it is what you thought you did. You were caught up in the excitement of it or the what-ifs of it. And then when the world receives what they wanted, they find out that it wasn't enough to satisfy. Thank God that because of Jesus Christ, we've been put in a tier above that. One that doesn't look at the things of this world, but one that looks out ahead at the things to come. And this is why we should care so much about prophecy and what this prophecy has to say. Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. You think, good grief, you dropped us in the middle of chapter 9, verse 1. What in the world is going on here? 
Israel is going to suffer discipline. And places where they thought would be well-to-do, places where they thought would be good to settle and have a flourishing life and give them everything that their heart ever desired, God is actually going to invite in a form of discipline against them. And He did that with a people who are known as the Assyrians. Now, we've talked about the Assyrians a few times over the years. These are the weird people who would come in and dominate everything, lead people back with fish hooks chained together in their jaws, and then when they got them there, skin them and cover their furniture with them. Merry Christmas, everyone. It's brutal. They were the masters of brutality at this time. And Israel had gone so far that God was going to allow a type of destruction to come upon them in order to wake them up. Now let me say this real quick in comparison. If you haven't recognized, the American church is ripe for this. Okay? This is the reason why we need to hold to the Bible as our instruction book and Christ as our head. This is why we cannot afford to be wavering at all, not to the right or to the left. See the warnings that are given to Israel and how God worked with them even though He loved them so much. And let's pay attention and not make those mistakes. And I hate to say it this way because it almost sounds like a, a, a classification, but not be those people. Let's actually be the people who are wise and when we listen to the counsel of God's Word and we see what He's done in history, let's pause for a moment, take a spiritual time out and make a right decision to say, regardless of what happens, Christ first and foremost, always. Obedience to His Word, always. I love the phrase, God's will, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Just do what God would have us to do. The children of Israel found themselves in a bad way. Now, you might notice here, you might say, well, where in the world is Naphtali and Zebulun? I don't have any maps today for you, but you will know this. We know where Galilee is, yes? We know that Nazareth is close to Galilee. It's an upper northern region of Israel. There they have the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus quieted the storm when he's out on the water. Everybody remember this? <clears throat> Just north of the Jordan River, the Jordan River flows down into the Dead Sea. That's the bottom tier of, of Judea, okay? Up in that time is where Naphtali and Zebulun had settled. Destruction had come along. They were in a bad way. The Assyrians were coming to take them out because of their idolatry and their rebellion. But here's what God was telling them. It's not always going to be like this. It may be a trying time now. There may be sorrow now. You may be experiencing suffering now. With God, it's not always going to be like that. God is going to rescue. God is going to redeem. God has made a promise. His very character rests upon His Word. So what does He have to say to these people? Look at verse 2. This is interesting. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Notice, the people who presently walk in great darkness will future see a great light. Those who live in a dark land presently the light will shine on them. Now, here's what's interesting about this. If you're somebody who likes to jot notes, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, actually document this, and Matthew tells us this was done so that the prophecy in Isaiah would be fulfilled. And then it gives way to Jesus Christ beginning his ministry. Right now, Israel was walking in darkness in Isaiah's time. Guess what? 
God's going to give you light. God is going to make sure that the present darkness is lifted and He's going to illuminate the situation. Now here's what's interesting about this. Because Matthew captures this for us and tells us, and we don't have to flip back and forth with that, but I just want to give a little, a little thinking about prophecy and how we look at it. Everything right here is dealing with first coming. Now, just to give you some nerdy stuff, if I had the surface up here, I would show it to you. But in a situation like this, I usually draw a line there where I know it's first coming stuff. I'll draw a line across and then I'll put a little out to the side and I'll write first coming. Why is that? Because a lot of times whenever the prophets would speak, they would speak about events of first coming and second coming one right after the other. It was sometimes a rapid fire situation. Now this is interesting because it really gives a lot of realistic grasp on what exactly happens in the ministry of Jesus, the earthly life of Jesus and what happened. Because what we find is when Jesus showed up, they really accepted him and loved him at first. But as his ministry went on and as he began to speak to them about the hard things of life, all of a sudden his teaching became something that they couldn't stomach anymore. And you find out that the leaders who be, the powers that be, start making overarching decisions for all of the nation. And next thing you know, they capsize this entire situation and it leads to the betrayal, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Christ. And I can't help when I read the Gospels to sometimes think, what would it have been like if the people just would have listened at this time? But what we see something here is a stark contrast. And I sometimes wonder if the prophets have put it this way based on the response of the people of Israel. Now, did God know that they wouldn't respond well? Yeah, he understood that. He understood that his son had to die for the sins of the world. His crucifixion was actually something that was predestined to happen. So that's something that we have to grab onto and accept the Bible's understanding of that. But with this passage right here, when it starts in, in verse 3, it moves into second coming situation. Now watch what he says here. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. Why? It's all of grace. God is going to have such grace on you. Now, here's the thing. At the first coming of Jesus, did the people who were in darkness receive a light? Yes, they did. Were they enthralled with gladness? No, they were not. Did they multiply as a nation? No, they did not. In fact, from that moment, they dwindled into a situation where the Romans came in and eventually destroyed Jerusalem, and then you give them about another 70 years, and they dispersed the Jews all over the map. Just as the discipline in Deuteronomy said, would happen if they raised up idols and rejected God's way. So God is faithful to His word in this. Now look at verse four. As with, or sorry, the rest of verse three. <clears throat> as with gladness of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoils. This is the reason why men get pictures of themselves holding the antlers of what they killed instead of in the process of hunting them now. Have you men ever, I've never, I don't hunt. I'm just not down with killing things. I don't know, okay? I catch them. I don't kill them. All right? But here's the thing. Has, have you ever had one that got away? You ever had a fish? I've done this. Have you ever had a fish that you were reeling in and you thought, good grief, the way that this is tugging, this is going to be as big as I am. And then all of a sudden your line gives out and it gives away. You ever done that? Does anybody want to see a picture of that? Only people that don't like you, right? They want to get the face. That's what they want. Because that's how you feel. 
But it's not until victory is achieved that you take hold of those antlers and you say, take this picture now. We did this. We've got something to be joyous about. This is the reason why we capture those special occasions. We appreciate that joyful situation. It's like when you've done all the work in a field of planting and cultivating and watering and tending and weeding over and over and over for months and months and months. And finally you say, we can bring it all in. Now is the time. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to feast upon the results of everything that we worked on. God actually encourages that. He says the joy that they're going to experience during the second coming is going to be just like that. Bring all of it in and have a party. That sounds like a good time to me. Did that happen during the first coming? It did not. Look at verse 4. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders. This is crazy because it's, a, it's like a, a metaphor that was put forward for being under heavy servitude. Actually, you're in slavery. Was Israel in slavery to, to Rome? Actually, they were. Notice the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. You say, what in the world does that have to do with Christmas? Well, here's what he's doing is he's projecting to the second coming. And he says, you're going to take their boots and you're going to take their cloaks and you're going to burn them all. Why? Because there's no need for war anymore. When the Savior returns, war is over. Conflict is over. Dissension is over. Disagreement is over. Tension is over. Having to go to the in-laws' house is over. All wars. What? We're not there yet? That's why you groan and giggle. I know what that's why. Just kidding. Hope my in-laws are not watching. All right. Then we come to the two verses that we commonly know. Verse 6. I want you to pay attention to how this is worded because it's incredibly important. It says here, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government <coughs> or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And I love this. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Familiar with this verse? Notice that there is a fourfold description that's given of how this is going to happen. The first thing I want to look at is in verse 6 it says, for a child will be born. A baby will come about in a human way. Yes, sir. Uh, this is probably about, I don't know, 550, 600 years, somewhere in that. Some people have dated this as early as 400. I don't think it was that early on. So yeah, it's about 550 years before. But that's the nature of prophecy. Being able to capture those things in such detail and then have them transpire later to see God was right the entire time. Absolutely. Notice the first means to go about it is a first coming way. The fact that a child is going to be born. This stresses the human side of Christ. 
He's actually going to be flesh and blood like you and I. He's actually going to understand disappointment like you and I. He's actually going to experience gladness like you and I. He's going to come and live and settle himself in life just like us. In John, it says that he tabernacled among us. He set up shop. He decided he was going to pitch his tent here and spend time with us. He's going to relate and immerse himself fully into the human experience. But notice in the second part, it says, a son will be given. He was a son before he was ever born. Do we understand that? This is what is known as the eternal sonship of Christ. He has always been the second person of the Trinity. He has always been the Son of God, the Father. He, the Son, the the Spirit, all existing in the Trinity together. This is all pre-showing up on earth. So notice when it says the Son is given, introducing into human history, and the Son from eternity past is actually going to be given to you. Given. God gave His Son. That is the Gospel. Gave it to who? He didn't give it to Satan. He's not trying to appease Satan at all. I love it because God has a, has a, has a no payment clause with Satan. I appreciate that. He gave it for us. God gave His eternal Son in a form of actually being born into this world for you. Here's what's amazing. Regardless of what time period you live in, regardless of what mode of history you may come from, regardless of geography, regardless of family or culture, it doesn't matter. The same Son was given equally for every person. This is what makes it the nature of a gift. Notice how He's described here. Number one, wonderful counsel. Wonderful counsel. If you're somebody who's taking notes, you wouldn't mind to jot this down because I want to share a few verses with you about who Jesus is. They kind of go over His nature. These are very good mind renewers in order to grab onto. When we get, when we get, I don't know why the word befuddled is coming to my mind. I never use this word. When we get befuddled, I'm just going to say it, Spirit's leading, okay? When we get befuddled in life, it really helps to be able to have a scripture or a passage to grab onto in order to settle our hearts and minds so that we can actually experience stillness when it gets bad. Notice here, wonderful counselor. What does this mean? It means that he's extraordinary, unusual, marvelous, beyond comprehension in some way. But the idea of counselor just absolutely screams wisdom. It actually tells us. I mean, think about it. Why would you ever go to somebody to get counsel? For what reason? Don't know what to do? There's a problem that seems unsolvable. There's a situation that maybe people cannot identify with, and so we've got to have some sort of consensus about how to get a hold of this. Maybe I'm too close to the problem, and I need a bird's eye view to take a look at it. Do you realize that Jesus Christ is all of these things for us? Let me give you a couple of examples. In the book of Colossians, if you want to just jot it down, you can look up on the screen and share it with me. But in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, it's kind of in the middle of a sentence, which is weird. But in speaking about Christ, it says, Christ, in whom, that's Jesus, are hidden all the treasures. Now, we like treasure, don't we? Yes. X marks the spot. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What needs to be known or what could be known are found in Jesus. 
how to apply what can be known in an effective way to where it makes an awesome difference in your life is found in Jesus. All of them. All treasures. That means that He's not lacking in anything. That means if there's any counsel that we would ever need in a situation, you don't have to go dial up somebody and paying $80 an hour in order to get help. You can simply crack open your Bible. Say, Lord, lead me in a direction I need to go. Spirit, be my teacher. Because Jesus Christ is the answer to this situation, regardless of what the problem is. This is just how all-encompassing this delivery of a son is. How about this? If you were to move on in the chapter and you look at verses 8 and 9, you can just see them up here, but if you want to jot it down. <coughs> Paul warns them. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Notice that has to do with how the mind works and thinks and how we express ideas. Now look where he tells you they come from. According to the tradition of men. These are all the systems and thinkings of the best that created people can do. But notice what he says, according to the elementary principles of the world, according to the basic way that life just seems to go, the basic flow of life. Well, everybody does this. Well, this is just the way it is. Well, we can't fight against the flow. Well, don't you realize that this is what is expected of us? What does Paul say? Don't fall into that trap. People came up with that trap. Don't just say this is the way we ought to go because everybody else is going. That doesn't make it right. See that no one takes you captive. You know what that means? Being let off is a POW. That's what it means. It means fruitlessly doing anything about it. Don't do that. Don't just hold your hands up and surrender. Look what he says. Rather than according to what? Christ. Notice he doesn't give you some alternate system, some alternate way of thinking, some alternate philosophy. He gives you a person. Everybody see that? How do you answer this trying situation or this dilemma that you might be having mentally? You answer it with a person. Not a philosophy. Not a plan. Good grief, guys. Aren't we good at plans? For some reason, we're always good at coming up with plans, but when we need the plans to build something, we throw those out. I don't understand that. We're good at plans, and we love it when it's our plan. Notice that God doesn't give you a plan. He gives you a person. Notice from Christ. In Him, why should we look to Him? In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You know what that is? Incarnation. In fact, here's what I would say. The incarnation serves to show God's initiation in righting the eternal wrongs of history. The fact that He sent His Son to be born says that God's going to do something about the ills that we feel all the time. Notice when we talk about needing a wonderful counselor to counsel us through these hard times, it's always a person, it's always a person, it's always a person. God chooses to answer us in His Son. Get this. God answers us. How come God's not answering me? I've been praying about this. God has answered. He answers in His Son. Notice the second person that we have here, or the second description of Him. Mighty God. Everybody see that? It's actually one word in Hebrew pretty much. El Gabor is what it is. It's the idea of it not being separated in any way. In fact, mighty is only used of God Himself in the Scripture, in this way in the Hebrew. Notice that it emphasizes valiant, bold, 
strong. He's a person who fights for his people. Might actually think about it as a champion would be there. He's the one who can carry the weight. What do you think the biggest weight is that you've ever carried? Don't answer out loud. Just think for a second. I actually think that there's something that the Scripture has to say about this. If you want to jot it down. Mighty God. How does Jesus show Himself to be mighty God? In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, here's what He says. Think about this. Come to Me. I like that because it's an invitation. Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I, who's speaking? Jesus. A person will give you rest. I love that he doesn't say, I might give you rest. He doesn't say, if your case is strong enough, I could give you rest. It's not like we're trying to hire a lawyer here to see if they'll take your case. Notice that some of the greatest things that we ever carry that we need a mighty God to be involved in, it's just the things that make us weary and heavy laden in life. Notice that Jesus' invitation is wide open arms. Come to me. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Stop. That means, everybody knows what a yoke is, yes? And any time that you are training a younger animal to know what it is to be able to pull the till or to pull a wagon or something like that, you would usually pair it with an older, more experienced animal so that they could begin guiding them and getting them used to this situation notice what jesus is saying about there take my yoke upon you get in alignment with me and learn from me sometimes we forget that jesus fixed my problem somehow we think we come to mick church that we can just mick order and then get our mick menu it doesn't happen that way it is not a order here get it here and we treat our prayer lives like that no This is why the repeated calls to come to him over and over to seek his face in the matter. Why is that? Because when he delivers, he wants it to be undoubtedly to his credit and favor. He wants you to know that he listens, that he cares, that he supplies. But we've got to learn from him. Notice he says here, for I am gentle and humble. I don't know about you, but I could stand for more gentleness and humility in my life. Notice that a person is the model of that. I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Isn't it interesting that the yoke is easy, burden is light, is totally put in a contrast between what it is to be weary and heavy laden? Does everybody see what Jesus is trying to do there? Are you worn out? Are you burdened? Are you beat down? I feel like sometimes you don't want to even get in the car and face the day. God has answered you in the person of His Son. It's not about doing things better. Certainly not about trying harder. Not about the new plan I have to make things work. It's about Christ. I got in an, I'll tell you this real quick, personal story. I got in an argument with somebody one time. I was right. And uh, I got in an argument about, about something with somebody that was just needless. It was needless. It was. 
and this person's a believer in Christ. And when they wanted to sit down and talk about it, I started talking to them about the things that are mentioned in Romans 6. About the fact that don't you realize that you're dead to sin and you're alive in Christ and you don't have to present the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness anymore. Christ has set you free from all that. The person has intercepted this and overturned this and renewed you. And you would have thought that cockroaches were crawling out of my ear. They kind of looked at me like a dog that didn't know what to think. What? What? The idea that Jesus would be the answer of supplying a brand new life and being the mighty God that takes this burden of anger and hatred that they carry and can completely alleviate them was so foreign to them. They've been in church for at least 10 years. They've had exposure to the Scripture for at least 10 years. Do we not believe who Jesus is? Do we actually embrace Him as the person that He is? Or is He just the little baby in the manger? The person of Jesus is how God answers the problem of people. How about the next one? Notice that he moves on and says, Eternal Father. Now here's what's interesting about this translation is that's actually a shortened translation of, of what the Hebrew here means. It actually means Father of the eternal ages. Can the Son be the Father? Wait a second. How does that work? Well, they're one, yes. One in essence, three in person. But this isn't talking about fatherhood in the essence that we think of God the Father. This is talking about one who is the head of the household who is over time. Not just in this age now, but in the ages to come. <clears throat> and in fact, the idea is, is that it deals with the kingdom matter. In fact, if you look at these two verses that we're paying attention to, have you noticed up in verse 6 it says, and the government will rest on his shoulders? I'm going to ask you a, a trivia question. Don't get it wrong. Is that happening right now? Boy, you guys are so confident in prophecy. Which tells you that this is pushing for what? Second coming. And when we speak about second coming, this is the reason why we speak about a literal kingdom established of which Jesus Christ will reign the world with a rod of iron. This is the reason why we seek to live obediently now because of the new life that He's given to us so that we will have positions of ruling and reigning alongside Him in His administration when He brings it into fruition. When we talk about Him being Father of the eternal ages, we're actually talking about the fact that all prophecy rests and hangs on Him. In fact, uh, something to write down. I don't think I have it back there. But Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, it says that all prophecy has Jesus as the center. Do we have that back there? Yeah. Look at the bottom. The bottom sentence. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The spirit of prophecy, all prophetic things, is found in a, in a person. Why is that? Because He is the Father of all ages to come. He is the one who oversees it and moves His household and administration and economy the way that He wants to. He is the coming ruler. Pay attention, guys. Pay attention. 
Because the world is getting ready to be plummeted into a situation where they're going to cry out for rescue. Beast is not going to be able to do it. The presidency is not going to be able to supply for it. World leaders are going to strive for it and kill one another to try to take it. But it is the, the stone made without hands that is going to come in and dash the world powers to bits. This is our little baby in a manger. This is God answering the world problems through a person, through the person of His Son. A couple of verses to put down with mind renewers. Number one, the prophecy about His birth. Luke chapter 1, if you wouldn't mind, jot it down for you. Luke chapter 1, 31 through 33. Notice the angel comes, speaks to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And sometimes we act like that's where Christmas stops. Are we thankful for the incarnation? Absolutely. Are we thankful that Jesus came in the flesh? Without a shadow of a doubt. But let's not separate it. Let's be grateful for the incarnation every day. And let's not separate it from the plan, the course, that God has put forward for the Son to accomplish. Notice what he says. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, all governments on his shoulders. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is why we believe in the literal second coming of Christ. Because this was prophesied when he conceived, when he was conceived. But it has not been fulfilled yet. Has the first part been fulfilled? Yes. But we are awaiting the second part of that prophecy to be fulfilled. How about this one as well? 1 Corinthians 15. You can put that up. We got that? No? Everybody put your finger here or take your ribbon out and put it there. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I must have missed, messed it up. I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 15. I actually think I meant to take the Revelation verse out and put this in. 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the importance of the resurrection. In verses 23 through 26, Paul gives us a very short timeline of the tribulation and how the end will come out into the eternal kingdom of Christ. And in verses 25 and 26, he gives us this. For he must, what does it say, church? He must reign. Notice this. There's no other destiny for the person of Christ. He will reign. The bad thing that we get into when we believe in superheroes in life is that there's always somebody else that might come along and topple that superhero so that evil rules for the day. We deal with world powers like that. Notice the final word on it from the Apostle Paul is Jesus must reign. There's no other way. He must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Watch this. The last enemy that will be abolished is what? Death. He will reign over death. You know what this tells you? It tells you that his reign is not just about the physical. It's about the spiritual. It's about the eternal. God answers the problem of death in the person of his son. The value of the incarnation. Let's turn back. Last one here. He's also known as the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. We pray all the time in our home for peace. Your parents can smile. It's okay. Because we have a six-year-old and a two-year-old. Lord, please have peace rest upon our home. 
Prince of Peace. You might be familiar with this one, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, if you could jot it down. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, if you've believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior because He died for your sins and rose from the grave, if you've believed in that, you're actually justified by faith. What does that mean? It means in the eternal courts of heaven and the universe, God has banged the gavel and declared you absolutely righteous in His sight because of the work that Jesus did perfectly on the cross, not because of anything that we've done. It's by His grace that He's made that happen to us. So when we believe, we step into that, and God has now banged the gavel and declared you spotless. So therefore, having been justified by faith, if you're a believer in Christ, this is your reality. We have, presently speaking, already peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I love. Jesus didn't come to give a way of peace. Sometimes we think like that, and I think that it's, 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 it's well-meaning thinking, but it bypasses the fact that Jesus Christ is our peace. What was going on before we knew Jesus? Anybody remember what your struggle with God was like? Anybody remember how fluent you were in other languages before you came to God? No one? Anybody remember a lot of the self-servings that went on? The treatment of other people? The way that all you cared about, the only God that you had at that time was you, was me. Sounded like that always. Bucking up against God, bucking up against God. Why? Because his plan for you was one of love. His arm was extended to invite you into his family. He doesn't desire for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's what his desire was. He wants nothing more than for the gospel to be accepted. And when that happens, you're not only justified by faith, but you come into an agreement situation with God. And you have peace. How is that? Because peace is a person. Peace is the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I just wish I had peace. You have it. I have it. Because I have Christ. And oh, how different my life would look if I just utilized the things that I already had, the person that I already had, rather than praying for something that God's already given me that He's not going to give me. Why doesn't God give situations? Or why doesn't God give peace sometimes in situations? we already have peace in His Son. Let's draw off the resource that He's freely given by His grace rather than asking something as an addition like it's icing on the cake. Not. He doesn't do it that way. Again, He answers us in the person of His Son. Let's make it real clear. Throw it up on the, on the, on the screen so everybody knows. Write this down, please. If you don't get anything else out of this, get this. God answers us in His Son. God answers us in His Son. Can you say it with me, please? God answers us in His Son. We scramble and we search and we look for everything else, and God answers us in the person of Jesus. Why do we celebrate the Incarnation? Because it's God's answer. Every question we've ever had, here. Everything we've ever needed, here. And what I love about God is His answer doesn't change. If you haven't done this, I would encourage it. 
Watchman Nee has a book called The Normal Christian Life. If you've never read any of his work, one to read. You'll chew on it for a long time. Here's what he says in the introductory comments of the first chapter. <coughs> Excuse me. God makes it quite clear in his word that he has only one answer to every human need. His son, Jesus Christ. In all his dealings with us, he works by taking us out of the way and substituting Christ in our place. The Son of God died instead of us for our forgiveness. He lives instead of us for our deliverance. So, we can speak of two substitutions. A substitution on the cross who secures our forgiveness and a substitute within who secures our victory. It will help us greatly and save us from much confusion if we keep constantly before us this fact that God will answer all our questions in one way only, namely, by showing us more of His Son. When life's problems come about, do we turn to Jesus? When we get hard news, do we turn to Jesus? When it doesn't look like it's going to work out, do we turn to Jesus? When we're searching for joy, do we turn to Jesus? When we're looking for victory in our life, especially over a sin that's plaguing us, do we turn to Jesus? When the schedule is mashing us, as only the way of this life can do, do we turn to Jesus? When the grief is too much, do we turn to Jesus? If we reflect upon anything today, understand that the present that God wanted to give to the world, the person of Jesus, so that we would actually have an answer to the why in life. Why, God? Why? Why did this happen? Why did this take place? Why did you let this become this way? God doesn't need to say anything else to us except put forth His Son. He answers us. I can't think of any better reason to have a joyful heart, to recognize that the trials of this life are not even worth being compared to the glories that will be revealed in the time to come. Why? Because the only reason that I have glories to look forward to are because the person of Jesus has been brought to this earth, died on a cross, and risen from the grave, and has given every one of us his promise, I will come to get you. In the meantime, what do we do? You need an answer to tell you this. Pray. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you that though he anguished over the cup that you had given him to drink, he moved forward, entrusting himself to you, to your will, to die on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, that he knows how to sympathize with our weakest moments. He understands what it is to have a hurting heart. He wept. 
tomb of Lazarus, even though he has power over the dead. That is an eternal compassion that we all need. Father, strengthen our resolve that your answer for our lives is the person of Jesus. For those who do not know Christ, the answer is for those of us that do have a relationship with God, thank you. Could have stayed uninvolved. Could have chosen to ignore us. But Lord, I, I pray that our hearts are rejoice in the fact that you've answered your answer is perfect, sufficient, awesome, wonderful counsel, mighty God, eternal Father. Father, thank you for the 